All right, we are continuing our study of the Gospel of Matthew here on the Listener's Commentary. And on this recording, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 29. It is the last section of the Sermon on the Mount. And in our previous recording, we wrapped up what uh, I like to think of as the body of the Sermon on the Mount. And by the body of the Sermon on the Mount, I mean those two central parts that have to do with examples of surpassing righteousness and barriers to surpassing righteousness. And so in this section of Jesus' teaching, he now turns to the conclusion of the sermon with appeals to put into practice what he's just taught. And it demonstrates that the Sermon on the Mount isn't uh, intended to be some impossible ideal, and some people have actually taught it that way. It's an impossible ideal to show us how sinful we are. No, the Sermon on the Mount isn't intended to be some impossible ideal. It's actually a plan of action for disciples of Jesus in the kingdom of God. And that's why it ends, as it does here, with appeals to action, with calls to action to put it into practice. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus's vision for a life well lived. And he expects those of us who are his disciples to begin to put it into practice. And yes, we may never fully achieve it in this life, but we, we can actually begin to do what he said and live a life well lived. And that's what he calls us to here in this concluding section of the Sermon on the Mount. And so this, these verses, verses 13 through 29, is Jesus' concluding call to action. And it begins with a call to... Don't just choose your path of life based on how many other people are choosing it. That, that's not the proper way to decide which direction to go in life. So Jesus says in Matthew 7, 13, enter through the narrow gate. And he's using the imagery, very familiar imagery, from going in and out of a city. So if you're going to go into or enter into a city, there's all sorts of gates around a city in the ancient world. The, the cities were built with walls around them. In fact, that is one of the key things that distinguished a city from a village was a wall around it. And so a city had walls around it, and there would be all sorts of gates at various points in that city wall. So using that imagery, Jesus says, enter through, not the big, broad main gate, not the gate that everyone else is using, enter through the small, narrow gate. And Jesus is going to develop this imagery in what follows between the wide gate and the narrow gate. It's the picture of two ways. There's two paths you could choose in life. Choose the right path. And so the narrow gate in this imagery here is the correct or the right path. You actually see similar kinds of teaching in the Old Testament. You see it in some of the Jewish rabbis surrounding Jesus' time period. It was a familiar way of uh, challenging and encouraging people in what are they going to choose to do in life. So, for example, you see it in Psalm chapter 1. You have the way of the righteous and you have the way of the wicked and the outcomes that they lead to in Psalm 1. And so Jesus is using a kind of teaching that is very familiar. And, and the point is, you need to be careful in the path you choose. Here's what he says as he follows that up. He says, enter through the narrow gate, for 
And he's explaining here, for the gate is wide. It's the big, broad main gate. It's the wide gate. The gate is wide and the way or the road or the path. That's the idea of the way. It refers, it's just the standard word for road or path in the ancient world. So the gate is wide. The path is broad. It's a big, broad way that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. So this big main boulevard going through a big main gate, Jesus says, that's the standard gate that people are using, and that's the gate they choose for their way of life. Jesus is saying, avoid that gate. You're supposed to enter through, not this gate, but you're supposed to enter through the narrow gate. Uh, avoid this gate. Disciples don't use the big, broad, wide gate that almost everyone else uses. No, they enter through the narrow gate. And why is that? Well, look at verse 14. For the gate is narrow, it's a small little gate, and the way, the path is, in this translation, constricted that leads to life, and there are few who find it. And so notice the differences between uh, the gate you're supposed to avoid and the gate disciples choose. Uh, wide versus narrow, broad versus constricted. Uh, one leads to life, one leads to destruction. One has many people, one has few people on it. And when he says the way is constricted, this word constricted is actually from uh, the word thalipsis in Greek, which is the word for hardship or affliction or trial. Sometimes it's translated like uh, affliction or difficulty. It's this idea in this context of pressing in on you, being tight being confined, being squeezed. The idea is that the pathway that leads to light is a tight, narrow path that presses in on you. It's, it's even, you need to hear the idea of affliction or hardship. It's even difficult. And so this is instructive to us. Just because the way that we're on is hard and, and it's full of pressure doesn't mean it's not the will of Jesus. Uh, so often that can be a kind of a popular level assumption is, well, if we're walking in the will of God or the will of Jesus, man, things are going to just be smooth for us. No, that's not what Jesus says. Uh, his way is constricted and difficult and it puts pressure on you. And so the, the gate is narrow. The way is difficult and full of pressure that leads to life. There are few who find it. It would be a whole lot easier and a whole lot more comfortable to avoid this narrow way and go for the path of least resistance. But that path, Jesus says, leads to destruction. This is the path that leads to life. So choose your path in life carefully. Then Jesus tells disciples to pay attention to who they listen to. Why? Because there are people who claim to speak for God, but they really don't. And so you have to not only choose your path carefully, you have to choose your counselors and your advisors and the people you listen to carefully. Look what he says in verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but are inwardly ravenous wolves. Now, some people try to suggest maybe a specific kind of false prophet that Jesus is thinking of. I don't really think that's helpful, and I don't really think that's Jesus' point. This is a general warning. And it's a general warning to watch out who you listen to because there are people who claim to represent God. They claim to speak on behalf of God. They claim to tell you the way of God, but
but they actually lead disciples astray. They lead them away from the narrow path that Jesus just called his disciples to walk on. And in Jesus' own day, there actually had been prior to Jesus, and there still were during the life of Jesus and immediately after the life of Jesus, plenty of people who claimed to speak on behalf of God. They claimed to actually lead God's people on behalf of God. And one of the things they often did was they led people into insurrection against the Roman occupying forces, only to be executed and put to death by the Romans and then cause all sorts of hardship for the the people that remained. That was one type of false prophet that was very common in Jesus' day. In the days of Old Testament Israel, there were prophets who advised the kings, and they advised them to go against contrary to what was written in God's law, or they advised them uh, that all would be well if you made alliance with this king, or they advised them that um, all was going to be well, there's going to be peace in the land, don't listen to those people who are telling you trouble, trouble, uh, there's going to be problems. No, there actually was going to be problems because the true prophets were saying, you guys have violated the covenant and the covenant curses are coming. And so this has been a common theme throughout the history of God's people in the Old Testament, during Jesus' day, and really all throughout history. There have been people who spoke or claimed to speak on behalf of God or lead for God but actually didn't speak according to God's truth. They led people away from the truth of Scripture, from the narrow and difficult path of discipleship to Jesus. And Jesus' words here, when he says, beware, is watch out. That's literally the idea. Watch out for them. He says they are like wolves in sheep's clothing. Uh, that the, And not just any kind of wolves. He says ravenous wolves. The idea is, is they dress up and present themselves as harmless on the outside, but inside they're actually ravenous. They're hungry and they're snarling and they're looking to harm and destroy you. They want to use you and consume you for their own self-serving ends. And so they present, they paint themselves uh, as helpful and harmless and nice and oh, gentle and all these things, but inside they're ravenous wolves. How can you recognize them? Well, Jesus actually goes on to answer that in verses 16 and following, and he does so with a new metaphor. Look at verse 16. He says, you will know them or you will recognize them by their fruits. He actually restates this in verse 20, and that tells us that everything between verse 16 and verse 20 is about this idea. How do you recognize these People, these false prophets, these people who claim to speak for God and don't. Well, you recognize them by their fruit. And fruit here refers to the character of their life in total. That is what their life and their teaching produce. So that their own character and behavior is part of their fruit, but also the outcomes of their life and their teaching in the people that follow them. In the Hebrew scriptures, Uh, The Old Testament, where such warnings appear, it includes even leading people away from God and into idolatry or into behavior that's contrary to God's explicit commands in Scripture. And so when it says you will know them by their fruit, what he's talking about is their character that manifests itself in their behavior and their character that manifests itself in the impact on the lives of people and the way it leads people uh, contrary to God's will or God's way. In fact, Jesus continues developing the imagery like this in the rest of verse 16. 
and onward through verses 17 through 19. He says, grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? You recognize a grapevine. Why? Because it produces grapes, not thorns. So if a plant has thorns on it and no grapes, then you know, you know, it's not a grapevine. That's obvious enough, right? This is like, hello, duh, kind of moment. It, that's how you recognize a grapevine. Same is true with figs. Thistles don't produce figs. They produce thistles. And so if you see a plant with thistles, you know it's not a fig tree. Obvious enough. And Jesus' point is, well, apply that same principle to people, especially those to, who claim to speak for God and lead for God. Uh, that use this simple principle saying, look at what their life produces, both in the behavior of their life and in the impact on others, and it'll tell you whether or not they're a thorn bush or a thistle or whether they're a grapevine or a fig. And notice, too, that both thorns and thistles wound and harm. They cause pain. And I suspect that was intentional on Jesus' part. He chose contrasting imagery here to grapes and figs that are painful and damaging. Why? Because people who claim to speak for God and lead for God, but really are actually false prophets, they actually cause real harm in the lives of other people. Jesus then continues to drive home the point in verses 17 through 19 with a familiar bit of imagery, but it's still related to this whole point here. He says, so every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. In other words, the kind of fruit you see on the tree tells you whether or not the tree is healthy or whether something's wrong with the tree. Bad fruit indicates that the tree itself is bad. That word for bad literally is rotten. This tree is diseased. It's rotten, and hence it produces rotten fruit. But healthy trees, on the other hand, well, they produce good fruit, useful fruit, fruit that's actually vibrant and healthy and good to eat. And so the fruit, the visible external fruit, tells you the nature or the character of the tree. In fact, Jesus goes on and says in verse 18, a good tree, that is a tree that has healthy, good character, it simply cannot bear bad fruit. But nor can a bad tree, that is a tree with unhealthy, diseased character, well, it can't produce good fruit. The character of the tree determines the quality of the fruit. Now, that's why elsewhere Jesus actually says, make the tree good and the fruit will be good. You don't hang good fruit on a bad tree and hope that somehow the tree itself will become good. That's just not the way it works. You focus on the character of the tree. And that's ultimately what Jesus is getting at it here is the visible fruit of a person's life reveals the inward character of their heart and their soul. And so a good tree uh, will have good fruit. And so when you see good fruit, you know this tree is healthy and good. Bad fruit, well, that's going to tip you off that there's some bad character with this tree, some unhealthy character. In fact, there's such a direct and organic connection between the fruit and the character of the tree that the quality of the fruit doesn't just tell you what the character of the tree is. It actually determines the outcome for the tree itself. Look at verse 19. Every tree 
that does not bear good fruit. This is just the way it works in farming. Jesus is applying this to life. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, chopped up, thrown into the fire for firewood. Because it's useless. The fruit it's producing is no longer any good. And so that tree is just going to be cut down. That's just the way it worked. A tree that just year after year produced diseased, unhealthy fruit. That's it. This tree is a diseased, unhealthy tree. At least it's good for firewood. Let's cut it down and use it for that. And that's the point with regard to people. Uh, There is such a connection between the fruit of a person's life and their character that the outcome of their life will be determined by their visible fruit because it testifies to their inward character. So then, verse 20, Jesus says, to restate the point of this whole little section, he says, so then, you will know them by their fruits. That is, you will recognize these false prophets, these people who say they know God, who say they teach God's way. You will actually recognize them and know them by their fruits. Now, recall that in chapter 7, verse 1, Jesus said, don't judge, lest you be judged. But notice here that we are supposed to be fruit inspectors. That is, we're supposed to be able to say, oh, I can see the fruit of this person's life in total. I can see the visible behavior in their life. I can see the way their life impacts others. And based on that, I can tell whether they are really teaching the truth of God or whether they are a false teacher and a false prophet. And so this is one of those sections that reminds us we have to read all things in context and hold them in tension with each other so that we don't go too far one way or the other. There is proper discernment with regard to people, and you will know them by their fruit. Then in verses 21 through 23, Jesus actually states the point of this whole little bit of imagery about fruit and trees and all that. He states the point in straightforward language. What's the meaning of good fruit? What does it mean to watch out for false prophets? Well, here's what Jesus has in mind, verse 21 and following. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he will enter. In in other words, this tells us what good fruit is. Good fruit here is doing the will of my Father. People who claim to speak for God, but don't do what God expects, don't do what God teaches, they are false teachers and false prophets. People who teach others to do things contrary to God's will, they are false teachers. And so it doesn't matter that they claim to know Jesus or claim to follow Jesus, right? They say, Lord, Lord. Notice that. That's emphatic. Like doubling up the Lord is to, to emphasize this. Like they're, they're protesting and emphasizing how much Jesus means to them and how they follow Jesus. But it doesn't matter. Emphatic insistence on their belief in Jesus doesn't cut it. Their actions speak louder than their words. And so if they don't do the will of God, if they don't follow, in other words, the explicit teachings of God revealed to us in Scripture, then they are false teachers and false prophets. Uh, This is true even if they claim to do ministry on Jesus' behalf, he says. Look at verse 22. Many will say to me on that day, that is on the day of judgment, many will say, on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform miracles? In other words, they they are claiming to have done great deeds in the name of Jesus, uh, great deeds of ministry. But Jesus' point is, as we will see in verse 23, 
Doing powerful deeds of ministry, that's not the litmus test for faithfulness uh, to God. That's not the litmus test for being a true prophet. What's the actual litmus test for that? Well, as Jesus just said in verse 21, and as he'll emphasize in verse 23, it's actually obeying God, doing God's will. So if they don't do God's will, then here's what Jesus will say to them on that day, that is on the day of judgment. No matter their protest, Jesus will say, according to verse 23, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Leave me or depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. A couple things to notice. Notice one, that it's Jesus who actually determines their fate. I, Jesus says, I will say to them on that day, on the day of judgment, I will determine their fate. Get away from me. I never knew you. Now, we're so used as Christians, we're so used to thinking this way that I think we fail oftentimes to miss how shocking these words would have been in their original context. I mean, to all appearances, Jesus looks like an ordinary, common 30-year-old Jewish man. And yet he's saying here, he is the central person, the central one in determining a person's eternal destiny. He's going to be there on that day, and he's going to tell them uh, to depart from me, get away from me. I never knew you. He's the one who will call out their eternal destiny. So much so that failing to do God's will amounts to Jesus not knowing them. That's significant. This says a lot about Jesus' self-understanding, who he knew he was and what he was capable of doing. He is the one who determines a person's eternal destiny. Uh, another thing to notice here is, uh, notice when he says, I never knew you. Like, knowing doesn't mean nearly knowing about them. It means having an intimate relationship with them. In fact, think, for example, in, in biblical language where things like Adam knew Eve and she became pregnant. We're talking intimate relations. Knowing Jesus and being known by Jesus is central to what it means to walk with God. And here it entails doing God's will. So being known by Jesus and knowing Jesus himself means someone will actually do God's will. Again, we're not talking about perfection, but we are talking about progressive and increasing uh, obedience to what God teaches. And so to summarize this whole little section here, Jesus calls his followers to choose the tight, difficult, narrow path, to enter through the narrow gate. He calls his followers to actually watch carefully, watch who they listen to, because they got to watch out for those who claim to speak and act for God, but actually will lead you away from that tight, difficult, narrow path. And then what Jesus does in verses 24 and following is he wraps up the Sermon on the Mount with one final illustration that calls his listeners then and today to action. Look what Jesus says in verse 24. Therefore, here's the, the final conclusion, the final call to action of the sermon. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So he's using another illustration, this one now from the building practices of the day. So this person digs down in the imagery, right? Like they dig all the way down, clear away the sand, clear away the soil. They find the bedrock underneath the soil. That's what they build their house on. And the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, a big storm came into the village, came into the area, slammed against that house. And yet it did not fall 
because it had been founded on, built on, the rock. In contrast to that, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Instead of taking the time and putting forth the effort to clear away the sand and remove the dirt and dig down to bedrock, he just took the easy path. Ah, here looks like a good place for a house. And he built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, slammed against that house, and it fell. And its collapse was great. It came crashing down all around it. Now, in the illustration, what does the house represent? Both parts of the illustration represents the same thing. What it represents is a person's whole life. The house represents a person's life. And what you have are a picture of two people going about how they're going to build their life. Now, what's the difference between the wise builder and the foolish builder? Well, notice in the illustration, they both hear the words of Jesus. They hear the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. The Everyone who hears these words of mine, verse 24. Then again in verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine. So they both hear. So that's not the difference. They both actually hear the teaching of Jesus. What's the difference? What they do with the teaching. Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them. In other words, the wise builder is the one who puts forth the effort, takes the time, thinks it through, and figures out how can I build my life on the teaching of Jesus by putting them into practice. The foolish man is the one who hears the words and it's kind of like in one ear and out the other ear. He doesn't take the time to meditate on it. He doesn't take the time to think it through. He doesn't take time to consider the implications. He doesn't take the time to look at his own life. He just in one ear and one out the other. Oh, that was nice. That's pretty cool teaching. And he doesn't actually build his life on the teaching of Jesus by putting him into practice. That's the only difference. Both hear, but one hears and does. One hears and doesn't do. And what's the outcome? Well, the one who puts them into practice when life gets hard, when persecution comes, right? When affliction or adversity of any kind comes, right? When winds fall, floods come, uh, and all of that slam against that house, it actually, it might be shaken, but it stands firm because it's been founded on the rock. That is, it put Jesus' teaching into practice. The other one, the foolish builder, their life comes crashing down around them. And that's the difference. And so as we reach the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, what we hear ultimately is this call to, this is a plan of action. This is Jesus' vision for a life well lived. And it has to be put into practice. Now, the Sermon on the Mount ends then with verses 29 saying, When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This is the first of these kind of summary statements in the Gospel of Matthew. It's one of the key ways Matthew has organized his book. That He'll have these chunks of teaching, and then at the end of these blocks of teaching, he'll say something like, when Jesus had finished saying these things, or here, when Jesus had finished these words. And here, notice how the crowd responds. When he finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed. And why were they amazed? Well, the reason is because he was teaching them as one who had authority. And you hear this all throughout the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says in chapter 5, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you. And right down here to the conclusion where Jesus is the one who determines a person's eternal destiny. Um, you've got to put his words into practice, not just other people's words, not 
uh, you know, not even the law's words, as maybe you've heard them taught before, but the way Jesus has taught them. You've got to listen to the Sermon on the Mount and put it into practice, and that's going to determine the outcome of your life. And so all throughout the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard Jesus' authority. And that amazed the crowds because it was so different than their teachers and their scribes from their day. And so what Matthew is going to do in the next two chapters of his gospel is this idea of Jesus' authority is going to become the organizing principle or the direction for chapters 8 and 9. Matthew is going to put together a handful of snapshots from the ministry and the life of Jesus that demonstrate his authority, that show his power and his authority. And so as we go through chapters 8 and 9, that's what we're going to see, a collage of photos, collage of stories that paints a picture of Jesus' authority. Now, as we wrap up then the Sermon on the Mount, and we wrap up this particular section of it, let me just end again by this encouragement. As Jesus has called his listeners to action, so we too must hear the Sermon on the Mount, and we must go back through it and meditate on it, take the time, dig away the sand, think it through, and dig down deep to the bedrock and say, how can I put these things into practice? How can I actually begin to do this? We, we want to become doers of Jesus' teaching and not merely hearers who delude ourselves, as Jesus' half-brother James says in his, his letter, uh, that it's better to not just hear the word, but do the word. And so hearing can actually lead to self-deceit. We think we're fine because we know our Bible's highlighted. It's all marked up. Oh, yeah, we, we've heard this before. Oh, yeah, I'm familiar with that. I've heard that teaching. But have we taken the time to examine our life in light of it, to hold it up to our life like a mirror and, and say, okay, where do I need to adjust? Where do I need to change? What do I need to put into practice? How can I do what Jesus has said? It's one thing to profess to follow Jesus. It's another thing to actually practice it. And Jesus is calling disciples here to put this sermon into action. And so may we not just know the Sermon on the Mount, may we actually put it into practice. Thanks for tuning into this session on the Listener's Commentary on the New Testament. The Listener's Commentary is a crowdfunded, listener-supported Bible teaching ministry that we're able to give away for free simply because so many people give $5, $10, $25, $100, $50 a month. And so thanks a ton to those of you who make this ministry possible. If you have been blessed or impacted by the Listener's Commentary in any way, would you consider joining the team of supporters by swinging over to listenerscommentary.com? You can click the Give button. It'll redirect you to a page through World Family Mission, sort of an umbrella organization that oversees the financial donations for this ministry. And you can put in a dollar amount for either a one-time, or you can click the little box that says Make This Monthly, set up a monthly returning uh, donation right there. All monthly donors get access to the Study Hub that has some online courses and some bonus material to help you dig in so that you can learn and live the Bible. Thanks a ton in advance for your support.